Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. Thanks, Dan, and welcome to episode 23 of season two of the RTM podcast. No doubt, if you've been a Christian very long, you've heard of the Lord's calming the storm. It's a very dramatic scene. Three of the Gospels have this event recorded, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So, why did the Holy Spirit inspire three of the Gospel writers to record this? I ask that because it's very different from most of the Lord's miracles. For example, nobody is saved, nobody's healed, there's not even a sermon. And for most of the story, Jesus isn't even conscious. He's asleep in the boat. So, why did this event happen, and why is it included in the three Gospels? To answer that question, we have to understand the purpose of Jesus with the twelve disciples. What was he up to with these men for three and a half years? Of course, he was preparing them to be the apostles of the church. So, They were in training. They were in school. I suggest you could call it the school of faith. They could not be his disciples, nor could they disciple anyone else apart from faith in God. If they were to be the foundational stones of the church, they must be men of faith. Those three years were a seminary that primarily taught them how to operate in the realm of faith, and this was Jesus' primary purpose. As you see, Faith was the main thing throughout his entire ministry. At the very beginning of it, Jesus preached that great distinctive sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, which would be the foundation of his ministry and the kingdom. In the middle of that sermon, he referred to the disciples' weak faith. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? As you read the Gospels, you wonder if these men were the best Jesus could find. Could it be that these men were not the best students? I ask that because they had not yet earned their diplomas by the time graduation rolled around. They didn't really believe the Lord and His warnings about His death. And after His death, they certainly didn't believe in the resurrection. When the women who found the tomb empty and heard the angel's announcement that Christ has risen— reported to the apostles what they had witnessed, well, they didn't believe it. No, they doubted once again. Jesus wanted to move the disciples' faith from one degree to another, and that's his purpose for you. You, too, have been enrolled in the school of faith. You may not remember signing the application, but you're in nonetheless. And now that you're in, you might as well try to learn something. It might be novel for some of us, but let's do it, shall we? I've said for years that there are three degrees or levels of faith found in Scripture. D.L. Moody, the powerful evangelist of the second half of the 19th century, spoke of three kinds or levels of faith. He called the first struggling faith. He illustrated this level of faith as a man in the sea, struggling to keep afloat without a life vest, just trying to keep his nose above water. The second level is clinging faith. 
Moody's example was a man clinging to a boat to stay afloat. He's not out there by himself. He has something to help keep him up, but he has to cling to it for dear life. The final and highest level of faith is resting faith. This was demonstrated as a man resting safely in a boat. Well, I don't think Moody's breakdown of these three degrees of faith are too far off from Scripture, from which I take my three degrees. The first degree of faith I want to discuss, the first level, is weak or little faith. A helpful example of this is exhibited by Peter when, after walking on water toward Jesus, he began to sink. The Bible says, And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Perhaps the best case of weak faith is that poor father who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus and said, Lord, if you can do anything, heal my son. He's not quite for sure if Christ can. And Jesus said to him, All things are possible to him who believes. The man said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He had just enough faith to cling to Jesus, to hold on tightly and say, Lord, I I do believe, but it's not perfect faith. It's full of questions, so help my unbelief. And that, my friend, is weak faith. What God wants to do in all of us, especially you who are with your fingernails turned white holding on and you're tired of holding— He wants to lead you to a higher degree of faith. The next level of faith is, well, simply just faith or consistent faith. This kind of faith was prevalent in many who came to Jesus for healing. The blind man Bartimaeus is a prime specimen of a man whose faith was better than little or weak faith, but it wasn't strong enough for Jesus to call it great faith. Jesus asked Bartimaeus what he wanted him to do for him, and the blind man answered, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. He just calls it faith, not weak faith, not great faith, just faith. And immediately Bartimaeus could see he had enough faith to believe that Jesus could heal him. He just didn't know if Christ would heal him. Well, lastly, there is great faith. This is the highest level of faith there is. Jesus, on two occasions, commended the faith of someone by calling it great faith. The first was the Roman centurion whose servant was sick. He sent for Christ and requested that Jesus come and heal his servant, and he was so confident that Jesus could that he told the Lord all was necessary was for Jesus just to say the word and his servant would be as good as new. The man's faith was so impressive that our Lord said, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, no, not even in Israel. The second time is in Matthew chapter 15 and the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was demon-possessed. Even after Jesus refused to answer and insulted her, calling her a little dog, she steadfastly believed he could help. Her faith was so moved that he said to her, O woman, great is your faith, let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, what is the difference between these three degrees of faith? 
What distinguishes faith from great faith? What's the difference between weak or little faith and regular faith? The difference between these levels is the degree of assurance each has. Now, there's no need for us to discuss no faith. Sometimes the disciples had none whatsoever, and Jesus had to state it and rebuke them for it. But let's look at the first level, little faith or weak faith. What makes little faith less than faith is that faith has more assurance and hope than little faith. And great faith has full assurance and hope even more than regular faith. In the cases of the Roman centurion and the Syrophoenician woman, they were fully assured that the Lord Jesus could heal and that he would. That's why the centurion sends messengers to tell Jesus, just speak the word of healing. And it's why the Gentile mother would not relent to plead with the Lord. When Jesus called her a little dog, she argued that even the little dogs eat the crumbs of the children's bread. She was fully assured. This is the kind of faith that the writer of the Hebrews is discussing in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Great faith either develops to be accompanied with great or full assurance, or the word of God just simply comes powerfully and in much assurance. But either way, it is faith completely confident. And God tests us because, well, he wants to move us from one degree of faith to another. That's the reason for the struggle you're now in. That's the reason for the fight, the battle. God is moving you to a different level if, you'll, if you will only follow. Would you characterize your faith as weak faith? Are you struggling to believe God for your needs to be supplied? a lost loved one being saved, or are you just simply fighting to rest assured that you are a Christian? Well, you're not the only one who strains severely with little faith. The disciples and other great men of faith have as well. We all do. It's just the process. For example, in the mid-1800s in England, a man by the name of Hudson Taylor was preparing to go to China as a missionary. However, he knew that if he was to be a successful missionary, he had to put his faith to the test and learn how to trust God for all his needs before he got to China. In that remote land, he would be very isolated from help, especially from the homeland. And so Taylor developed his, his own school of faith in order to stress his faith so that it would grow. As part of his training for the mission field, Taylor served as an assistant to a medical doctor in London. Taylor saw this as a perfect opportunity to cast himself in faith upon God. The doctor was a remarkably absent-minded man about administrative affairs, including paying Taylor. He repeatedly told Taylor that he should remind him when his pay was due. So Hudson Taylor immediately decided he would never remind the doctor, but instead would pray and just trust God to provide his needs. A payday finally came when the doctor did not remember to pay Hudson. Several days passed with no salary. All of Taylor's money was gone and his rent was due that very evening. 
His landlord was a Christian landlady, and he knew she needed the money. And so he wrestled within for her sake if he should remind the doctor of his overdue wages. And yet by prayer, he felt he had received the firm assurance that he was to wait for God's timing and provision. At the end of that very day, that day that Taylor's rent was due, the doctor remembered his assistant's salary. Hudson was happily relieved, thinking his rent would be paid. But his joy was short-lived when the doctor said that he couldn't pay him because he'd already gone to the bank and deposited his money, and he'd have to wait until Monday when the bank opened again for him to receive his pay. Taylor quickly found a place to pray and poured out his heart to the Lord. Again, he found peace and joy restored, assured that God would not fail him. He worked late that night, and right before he was preparing to leave, he heard the doctor approaching the office. The doctor came in and told him that a strange thing had happened. A wealthy patient had come to his residence at 10 o'clock at night to pay his bill. The doctor handed Hudson Taylor some of that money and promised the balance to him on Monday. The amount received was more than enough for his rent. Hudson Taylor left rejoicing, knowing that he could live the faith life as a missionary to China. That sounds like a wonderful testimony, doesn't it? But even then, to borrow from D.L. Moody, he was on the outside of the boat. His faith was not resting. When turn of events came and it looked like he wouldn't get what he was believing God for, well, he would enter into despair and have to pray all over again. He wasn't in the boat. His was that first level kind of faith, a weak faith. Years later, as a missionary in China, Taylor came under a deep awareness that his faith was not resting in the Lord. His faith was more struggle than rest. He passed through a significant conflict of soul, trying to get a faith that was fully assured in God and His promises. In the midst of his consternation, he received a letter from a dear friend who also had been struggling with his weak faith. The friend's letter was instrumental in helping Taylor and his faith to grow to the next level of faith and eventually great faith. Taylor wrote a letter to his sister telling of his anguish and how the deliverance came. Here's what he wrote. All the time I felt assured that there was in Christ all I needed. But the practical question was how to get it out. He was rich, truly, but I was poor. He's strong, but I weak. I knew full well that there was in the root, the stem, abundant fatness, but how to get it into my puny little branch was the question. As gradually the light was dawning on me, I saw that faith. Faith was the only prerequisite. It was the hand to lay hold on his fullness and make it my own. But I had not this faith. I strove for it, but it would not come. Tried to exercise it, but in vain. Seeing more and more the wondrous supply of grace laid up in Jesus, the fullness of our precious Savior, my helplessness and guilt seemed to increase. Sins committed appeared, but as trifles compared with the sin of unbelief, which was their cause which could not or would not take God at his word, but rather made him a liar. 
Unbelief was, I felt the damning sin of the world, yet I indulged it. I prayed for faith, but it came not. What was I to do? Well, does this describe your struggle? You want more faith. You know you need faith, for without faith it's impossible to please God. The very heart of the Christian faith is this. The just shall live by faith, and yet it seems so much of the time you don't live by faith. You live by feelings or by sight or by the flesh. Well, let's continue to listen to Hudson Taylor's deliverance in his letter to his sister. He continues, When my agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a letter from the dear McCarthy, John McCarthy, was used to remove the scales from my eyes, and the Spirit of God revealed the truth of our oneness with Jesus as I had never known it before. McCarthy, who had been much exercised by the same sense of failure, but saw the light before I did, wrote, and I quote from memory, But how? How to get faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. As I read it, I saw it all. If we believe not, he still abideth faithful. I looked to Jesus and saw, and when I saw, oh, how joy flowed, that he had said, I will never leave you. Ah, there is rest, I thought. I have striven in vain to rest in him. I'll strive no more, for has he not promised to abide with me, never to leave me, nor to fail me? And dearie, he never will. Well, there you have it. Hudson Taylor got in the boat and fell asleep in the arms of safety. According to our text and the illustration of Hudson Taylor, this is precisely what you and I must do. We must see Jesus as he really is. Now, I've been indirectly referring to the story of Jesus calming the storm after the fearful disciples awakened him. I want to deal with it directly and unpack it for us. And so I want to share with you what is the whole purpose and lesson of this story. So to do that, I just think we need to read the text. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? As stated in previous episodes, faith must look and behold upon something that it can trust in order for it to be activated. We call this the object of faith. 
Jesus wanted to teach these men this vital lesson that their faith must have a sufficient object. Their faith, as well as ours, would never, never grow without the right object for faith. After our Lord exercises his faith and calms the storm, he asked his disciples, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Well, do you suppose his question suggested that they ought to have had enough faith to stand up and do what he did? Is that the purpose of his question? If you simply had enough faith, you ought to be able to say to the wind and the wave, peace be still, and it will be quiet and still for you if, if you simply had enough faith. Is that what Jesus was really stating in his question? Well, I've examined that as a possibility, and I've come to the conclusion that's not what Jesus means. There will come that lesson later on in the school of faith. He will say to them after the withering of the fig tree, If you had enough faith, you could say to this mountain, Be removed into the sea, and it shall be done for you. That came near the end of his ministry, near the end of their school of faith. And there would be time to learn that lesson. That's an advanced lesson of faith. The disciples here needed a more elementary lesson on faith. Their faith object was not correct. They needed the proper object for their faith. And so do you and I. Frankly, their problem was they didn't understand who was in the boat with them. You could say, oh, yes, they had enough faith to at least wake Jesus up and plead for his help. But do you really think they awoke Jesus in faith? Let's read verse 38 again. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What kind of prayer is that? <laughs> it wasn't a prayer. It was a rebuke. How can you be asleep when we're in one of the most dangerous storms we've ever seen? How can you remain asleep when the waves are crashing in on this ship, sinking it? Here you are, drenched in water, and yet you're still asleep. Come on, man, get a bucket and start bailing. We're drowning. You would think if they had enough faith in Jesus, they would have awoke him and said, Lord, we've been praying, but nothing's happened. We've had faith. We talked to the Father, but he seems not to listen. But we know he'll listen to you. No, they didn't ask for that. Instead, they simply rebuked him for not caring. Their faith did not believe that Jesus was capable of this kind of power. They never dreamed he could do this. Now, how do I know this? Well, I know this by the text. Their response to the miracle is how we know this. Verse 41, And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be, that even the wind and the sea obey him? We must remember these are experienced fishermen. The storm had scared them to death. They knew as far as they were concerned that this was a failed mission and they weren't going to make it. After Jesus did what he did, commanding the wind and the wave, and then seeing the wind and the wave obey, the Bible says they were afraid of what they just witnessed. It frightened them so much that they were more frightened about this man that they just couldn't understand. Because, a, well, a man can't speak to the wind. A man doesn't speak to the sea. And it immediately comes to attention and dutifully obeys. Who is this man? The question ought to tell you something 
about their faith. They didn't even know who Jesus was nor understand him. The object of their faith was incomplete. They didn't really know who Jesus was. That, that was the whole point of this story, and it's such an important lesson that God wanted it recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. You see, the key to your faith growing is knowing who Christ is in his fullness and perfection. You must know, if your faith is to grow, that God is good. He can be trusted, and you can absolutely rest upon, lean upon, recline upon him. And he will hold you up. I don't mean that you must simply know that intellectually. I'm sure that you all know this. If asked, is God good and can he be trusted? We all would say, yes, of course. But the real test in the school of faith is not an intellectual test that measures what you know. It's a test of your heart. Will your heart not fail in the moment of alarm? That's the real test of faith. Hudson Taylor learned something about Christ he didn't know before his crisis. Of faith, he realized that the Lord Jesus is not just someone who died on the cross and rose again and is someone he should obey. He discovered that Christ is sufficient and that the Lord Jesus is the source and object of his faith. He didn't even need to worry if his faith was enough for the storm. Jesus was his faith, and he was in the boat with Taylor. The object of his faith shifted from his own faith to Christ. And that is the lesson of this story. In our next episode, we will continue these thoughts as we learn to develop a faith that is great, a faith fully assured in the person of Jesus Christ. So please, be back to join us, and please invite someone to listen to the podcast. The only advertisement we have for this program is, well, it's you. Before we leave today, I want to tell you that we are and have made our book available, The Fight of Faith, How a Christian Can Experience Assurance of Salvation. If you'd like a copy, you can get it for $9.99. We also offer an ebook format for $7.99. And all you need to do is just simply go to the Real Truth Matters website. That's www.realtruthmatters.com. Realtruthmatters.com. And follow the link to the book. And while you're at the website, take advantage of the wealth of resources that are there for free download. Well, on behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in today. And may the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. <laughs>